YouTube is an amazing thing. Some people out there are actually making millions of dollars, or maybe a little less, posting videos of things they love to do, like motorcycle adventures, for instance. But it doesn't happen for everyone. And have you ever thought of filming your next adventure for just that, posting it on YouTube and becoming the next YouTube sensation? Well, you're going to want to listen to this next episode because Graham Hoskins is not only on YouTube, but he's also on television, and he has a real good idea of what it takes to film an adventure and sell it to television. As a matter of fact, his first adventure that he filmed, he filmed with a tiny handheld camera that certainly was not up to even YouTube standards. But he managed to sell it to a network, and since then he's produced three other series called World's Best biking adventures and if you're in the UK you can see it on television. Today Graham's going to talk about what it takes to make a film, what it takes to sell it to a TV network and the pros and cons of doing both. This is Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. We got a good one coming up for you, but don't run out there and buy your GoPro camera just yet. You might want to listen to the whole episode, and then maybe you'll have a slightly different opinion on whether you actually want to film. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. Weekdays, Graham Hoskins is a self-employed business consultant, but on the weekends he transforms into an adventurer, an adventurer with above-average drive and ambition, to say the least. In fact, Graham has been sort of perfecting a two-week adventure motorcycling model with some exciting trips that he's filmed for television. You see, Graham has a young family and business commitments, so he can only manage two weeks at a time for the crazy stuff, but he absolutely loves adventure. So he's developed this sort of a system for this two-week extreme adventures, and he pays the expenses for these adventures by getting sponsors and filming the trip for television and the internet. On this episode, Graham is going to share with us the ins and outs of filming on your trip, things to consider, like should you do it, for instance, and just what filming on the road is like and what it entails. Graham Hoskins is well known for the UK television series World's Best Biking Adventures, and he's also the host of the internet motorcycle show Adventure Bike TV. I spoke with Graham from his home in the UK. Hi, Graham. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Graham, you're working on a whole bunch of projects. I know if we were to start from today, uh, you are um, you're the host on Adventure Bike TV, which is a, an up-and-coming YouTube presence, for especially for the UK. And you also have some other television things that you've just recently done and possibly something coming up in the future. Can you just give us a rough idea of where you sit right now? Yeah, as you said, so uh, I present Adventure Bike TV, which is a, a monthly internet TV show. And we like to think of it as a... It's for, for the UK audience who know Top Gear. It's kind of Top Gear meets adventure bike riding. So we're not trying to be too technical. There's lots of magazines out there and, and websites who can give you all the technical information about motorbikes and adventure bikes. It's really designed to try and be entertaining and informative. That's what we're trying to do with Adventure Bike TV. And I've just actually had um, uh, another short series where we rode in two weeks up past the Arctic Circle along the Arctic Highway to the northernmost point in Europe and then back through Finland and Eastern Europe. Uh, and that was on a channel called Community in the UK just before Christmas. When did you first ride a motorcycle? Oh, goodness me, that's going back 
far too many years for me to to care when I was about 13. And actually, it was quite by accident. I wasn't sort of brought up on a diet of motorcycles when I was very small. Um, and I was actually trying to build a go-kart, if you can believe that, with with a friend. And we we bought this, we, we call it a, a granny step-through moped, basically a Honda C50. We bought it off a friend's mum when we were about 14. And we were going to take the engine out and put it into a, a go-kart. And we started riding it around the back garden of the, behind my friend's house. And I was instantly hooked on two wheels and motors. Literally, it was just instantaneous, bang. I just loved it and have loved it ever since. You've got a real passion and a real drive for life. Where does that come from? Um, I, I think I've always been somebody who, who likes to do things with life. You know, when, when I was a teenager, I just never had a spare minute. I was never sat down. I'm, I wasn't the kind of kid who, who would sit around twiddling their thumbs. Um, but then I, w- I was very ill in my very early 20s. I had um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is um, a form of cancer of the lymph glands. And uh, there's lots of people who talk about life-changing experiences, but it it genuinely was for me. I was in my final year of of college. Uh, I was 21. I I was very fit. I was in the Marines uh, Marines Reserves, the Royal Marine Reserves in the UK at the time. And it it completely spun my life around. You 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 kind of look at life differently after that because you've had to consider the fact that at 21, your life may not continue. Um, and it just made me think even more so than I always had done that everything I wanted to do in life, I would try my best to do. And it didn't matter what that was, whether it was work, motorbikes, um, other less proper things like drinking and socializing. But, you know, everything I just tried, I kind of did at 110 percent. So uh, um, and then actually after about 18 months after I, I, I had the cancer, I was um, in theory in the clear, although. They say it's a, it's a good five or 10 years before you're officially cured. But I had been in the clear. Um, and I started getting some really, really bad pains in my hip joints, which gradually got worse over a period of a year. And it turned out it was a side effect of part of the treatment for the cancer had caused my hip joints to degenerate to the point where I had no a hip joint is a ball and socket and I had no ball left. Basically, the, the bone had all crumbled. So I had to have a, a total hip replacement when I was 23 and then had another one a year later on the other leg. And those two things sort of even, it could have kind of gone one way or the other. You could have gone, oh, no, woe is me, throw your hands in the air, life is terrible now, I, I can't run, I can't play basketball, I can't play squash, all the things I used to do and then couldn't do after I had a hip replacement. But actually I thought the opposite, you know, it kind of made me even more determined to do the things that I enjoy doing. So, yeah, it does, it does go back quite a way, but it's made me um, a fairly focused kind of person. But that's not just the only two hip replacements you've had. You've had a total of five so far, haven't you? Yes. For, for anybody who has a, has a, a relative who, um, or themselves who has had a hip replacement at a relatively young age, um, they're not a permanent fix. Unfortunately, they, you know, the human body is an incredible tool and it's far better at doing most things than anything we can put in in place of the real thing. And the type of hip replacement I had originally over 25 years ago was basically a metal ball sitting inside a plastic cup. And eventually that plastic wears out. So my lasted, the first two lasted 13 years each. And then the second one lasted less time because actually, weirdly, I've been probably more active physically in the last 10 years 
than beforehand. So I've now had a total of five. So, so three on one leg and two on the other. During the day nowadays, you're a business consultant with your, your own business, yourself and somebody else. And then on nights and weekends, you're the adventure rider. Yes, yes. Um, I suppose that desire to try and take life by the throat and do something with it, that's part of what encouraged me to start up my own business before I was 30. Um, and I'm still running that same business now with a, with a business partner. And one of the many advantages to it, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of disadvantages to being your own boss. But one of the great advantages is the flexibility it gives me. So if I need to take time to go and do bike stuff, or even indeed family stuff, because we'll call that, that's all important as well. Um, but I have that flexibility to go and do those things. And luckily I work with a business partner who's very understanding about my passions as well. So I do get very indulged in doing those things, particularly by my wife, but um, by work as well. Your first big organized motorcycle adventure was back in 1990, where you did a charity ride for cancer, where you dressed yourself and your friends as chickens. Yeah, I was, so let me think, I was 20. And as a student, I didn't have enough money to have a motorcycle. And this is when, just after I found out that uh, I had been diagnosed with this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and my best friend and I, ever the opportunists, thought we could kind of do something that would raise some money for charity, but would also indulge our passion for motorcycles by doing a, this a, a charity ride. So um, it was quite a kind of strange scenario. And if anybody can imagine, I had, in the space of six weeks, gone from being you know, slim and fit and looking, then six weeks later looking terrible, all my hair was falling out. And in fact, I'd actually had most of it shaved off. I'd put on a lot of weight. And my, my friend, um, in sort of sympathy for me, had done the opposite. He was growing his hair to try and make up for the fact that I was losing all mine. So we must have looked like a very odd couple walking around these motorcycle shops in Plymouth where we were at college, just basically trying to blag motorcycles for a couple of weeks. Uh, I was just say, get them on loan rather than blag. But, yeah, get motorcycles on loan. And that's what we did. So we got a, cu a couple of shops in, in Plymouth to loan us motorcycles for two weeks, and we did a ride for charity. But um, being daft students at the time, we had to dress up for it. So we rode all the way from Plymouth to London and back, which is about 500 miles. It seems like a long way in the UK. It's not very much in the grand scheme of things in North America. But we did that dressed as chickens and raised a whole bunch of money for charity and stopped at lots of hospitals on the way to go and visit children's wards. Um, so, yes, it was, it was kind of a, a combination of still trying to indulge the passion for motorbikes um, but utilising what was a difficult situation for me to try and do something good for other people. Um, so, yes, if someone had seen us at that time riding along the motorway uh, in southern England, we were dressed as yellow chickens. And your next uh, venture that took you into filming something for television, tell us about that. Well, it, it was... Um, there was kind of a lull, I suppose, in some respects, in, in my motorcycling, in my... Uh, early to mid 30s because I, I was still riding bikes a fair bit I used to commute all the time to work but I had a family a very young family at the time really no time to do anything other than ride a bike into work and I was one of the people who sat and watched a couple of actors ride around the world 10 years ago um, and it, it inspired me not so much about the riding but it was two friends going out and doing the type of thing that my best mate and I had done 
when we were at college, you know, riding into London and back with dressed as the chickens and doing the daft stuff. And it was more that kind of friendship and doing something together in indulging ourselves in, in our passion, which was motorcycles. So I literally, I watched the first episode a long way around and was so inspired by it. I rang up my best mate who I'd ridden as chickens with. I said, you've got to watch this program. You've got to watch this program. These guys are great. It's, you know, it's, it's made me realize that our adventure riding has just gone really, really boring. You know, we don't, we ride somewhere, we get drunk, we ride back with a hangover. There's no adventure in that. We, we've got to do something, but we, we, we both worked. We both had young families. So we could only take a week off of work. So we were trying to find something that was adventurous and challenging and that would take us somewhere we'd never been before, but we could fit it into a week. And that was riding to Moscow and back. And we looked it up on the on the internet. Oh, that's a shade under 4,000 miles. We can do that in a week. That's not so bad. Um, we weren't quite so sure when we had a practice run one weekend and realized actually trying to ride six or 700 miles in a day, actually how hard that is. But that's what we did. And we, we, we found some sponsorship from... Um, from Yamaha and some support from clothing companies. And four months later, we did that trip and actually we did it in just under seven days. So we rode to Moscow and back. And whilst we were doing it, I thought there was something uh, in that concept of, of a small adventure. You know, what can you do in two weeks or a week that was amazing and life-changing? And, and how much could you cram in? You'd have to do a lot of miles, but how many different countries could you cram in in that time? And... So I then spent the next four or five years planning what eventually became the first TV series, which was riding 7,000 miles in two weeks, circumnavigating the Mediterranean Sea, which took us down through Western Europe, over from Italy into Tunisia, then through Libya, uh, uh, sorry, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, and then home. And that was that was five years ago, just before. Um, the Arab Spring. So it's not a journey that you can do now. And as far as I know, we were the last Western Europeans to do that trip before um, before the Arab Spring started with Tunisia first. In fact, I think the the Arab Spring followed our route. It went Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and now Syria. So um, yeah, and that, and that, and we just actually went and filmed. We filmed that just just the two of us. It was myself, and actually it was a, an actor from the UK, a chap who's in a, a very long-running um, sci-fi comedy series called Red Dwarf, and he plays a character in the, in the cat called the Cat in it, and it was just it was just me and him and a camcorder. Um, I had tried to get a commission to turn it into a TV series because I thought it would be quite entertaining. This whole concept of what you can cram into two weeks, but everywhere I went, it was a it was a chicken and egg situation you know in order to get something on tv you had to have a back catalog but to get a back catalog you had to have something on tv and I, I just couldn't get my way into it and somebody actually gave me some really good advice and it was it was one of the producers a long way around who i managed to call her at a bike show and he said to me if you really really want to do it he said you, you won't get a commission because you've got no experience he said but just go and do it have fun and film it and he said think about what you're filming and he gave me some advice and some tips he said, think about what you're filming, but just overall have fun because that'll come out on camera. Make it interesting because it's going to be adventurous. He said, and then if, it's, if it is good, when you come back, someone will take it. And that's actually what happened. Even though it was only filmed on a camcorder and the, the light was terrible in places and the sound was even worse, the sort of nature of what we tried to do, which is very raw and um, very challenging, that kind, of, that kind of ride in two weeks. 
So you financed it yourself then? You, you put up all the money for your trip and you decided let's just go on faith and hope we can come back and, and sell this this as a TV show? Yeah, I, I, I probably put up about half the money myself um, and I had some clients who I was who kind of I did some deals with that maybe I did a couple of free days of work for them and they paid me and and so I managed to, to half fund it. I put the rest of the money in, but I mean when we came back, I'd managed to get quite a lot of kit. You know, I got some camping gear and all our clothing and all our crash helmets and stuff. I had to sell every single thing I'd, I'd got in terms of product sponsorship to pay for the trip. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> that's the reality yeah. of things, isn't it? I, I yeah. mean, this is one of the things that, that we wanted to talk about on this is is making videos and and filming your trip and and because so many people want to do this and and want to promote themselves and I think a lot of times people run off with this idea that it's going to be so easy. I mean, we hear this over and over again with with uh, to hear someone talking about someone else's success and they say, well, it's easy for them; they got sponsorship. And I've said this before on this show, but it's it's an interesting point to hear again that sponsorship just doesn't happen that easy. These things don't fall in your lap. And your story is a classic example of you have to work and then you have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing to finally get something done. Absolutely. And it's the one thing I would say, and I get, I do get asked by a lot of people about sponsorship and filming and there are people out there who will give sponsorship and whether that's product or money, product tends to be easier to get the money, but there is stuff out there, but it is, as you said, very, very, very hard to come by. I had a very interesting conversation with somebody not very long ago, uh, last summer, who was doing a fantastic trip and also a very, very worthwhile charity. And they said, well, yeah, we have a, a target of £10,000 to raise in corporate sponsorship, not personal sponsorship. And I said, and they, but they couldn't understand why when they wrote to the likes of Triumph or to Yamaha or to the, a big clothing supplier or, or the insurers, the kind of people who you'd normally expect to have some money to support things, well, they didn't get money. And I said, well, what are you offering them in return? And they said, well, it's a good cause. And I said, well, every trip has a good cause behind it. Almost every trip has some form of good cause behind it. So you're competing with everybody else who, do, who is also doing something for a good cause. So, so what's going to make you different? What are they going to get in return? And almost every marketing executive or community marketing executive in a company will look at what you're giving them and and probably turn it into a pound sign now if i'm going to spend 500 pounds supporting your trip well if i spend that 500 pounds in advertising in a magazine or i spend that 500 pounds on our stand at a show that's going to give me something i can measure back what are you going to give me are you going to give me an article in the magazine are you going to give me um a, a, a written blogs or a video that i can use so they, you have to it's it's a business you have to trade with with these guys to give them something in return even then it's not guaranteed um, and when we did the med trip uh, before we went i had uh, agreed with motorcycle news which is the the biggest bike publication in the uk um that they would run an article when we came back but they only agreed to do that i think because of the guy i had going with me so i had somebody going with me who was yeah, he's very well known in the UK. And because of that, they agreed. So, yeah, all those things kind of fell in place for me, luckily. Um, but as you said, it, it is it is very, very challenging to get any form of sponsorship, but you have to be able to give something in return. Yeah, the thing to, th- to consider when you're approaching a corporation is that, first of all, lots of people are approaching them for lots of different things. And there is no Absolutely. shortage of ways to give if you want to give. 
And the other thing is, is that corporations aren't there to give money out. As a matter of fact, they're obligated by their shareholders to produce things with the money that they have. They're not there as a charity. So they have to look at every single thing that comes in as some sort of profit center. So what are they going to get for this? Like you said, what exposure and what, what are you going to give in return? And, and I agree. I think that's the big uh, mistake or big misconception that people have that think that corporations, because they have lots of money and $10,000 is not a lot of money or 20 or 100000 is not a lot of money to them that they can just simply give it away without anything. But but they actually have obligations. And if, and if they don't have some sort of reason, some sort of return on investment for that money going out, you're likely not going to get anything from them. Absolutely. And the other, the other one as well, and it's, if I if I talk, which I, which I do in various different kind of talks and presentations, if I talk about getting sponsorship and I talk about um, filming, is it's not just about necessarily giving something in return. It's also about coming up with a pitch which has been well researched, well planned out, uh, and th- and this happened again with with the, in fact with the Moscow trip, I sent an email through to uh, the marketing manager or the PR manager at Yamaha, and I rang him up and um, it only took that one phone call and he gave, he loaned us a couple of bikes for for a couple of weeks and that was fantastic because yeah yeah that was that was our first big step. And afterwards, I said to him, and I've stayed in touch with him after all these years, I said to him, what was it about what we did that made you say yes? And he said, well, he said, I'd probably get, and this was 10 years ago, he said, but I got two, three, four, five requests for something across my desk every day. And he said, there, there was two or three things that stood out. He said, one, you'd planned it. He said, you'd had, you had every single step of the way planned out where you're going, what you're gonna, <clears throat> where you're going to stay. Everything was planned out. And he said, you made it easy for me. It was, I'm going to come along. All I had to do was hand over the bikes to you. And then 10 days later, you gave them back to me. He said, you made it easy for me. And thirdly, it was, he said, it was different. He said, I hadn't heard of anybody doing that type of high mileage, cramming something in as a rank amateur. So he said, yeah, you, and you had that bit of it. You had a, I think we had a, another monthly journal who was going to run an article on this. He said, you sort of, you ticked all my boxes for me. And he said, Everybody else only ticked one or two boxes. I mean, that was 10 years ago. I think that, you know, now you've got to do a bit more than that. Um, but it, it is challenging. But I would never say to anybody, don't try and do it. If that's if that's the way you want to do your trip through sponsorship, by all means, give it your best shot. And it doesn't suit everybody. I know Graham Field, for example, uh, and actually I listened to his interview with you a few weeks ago. And he, he has a, a very different way. He, he lives his life in a certain way, which then allows him to save money, which enables him to do his trips. But every way of financing a trip has its own ups and downs. You know? Everything has an upside and everything has a downside. It's just what suits you. But this is the day when, you know, the internet's going crazy as far as uh, videos and, and as far as blogs. Everyone seems to think that, the, you know, they want a, p- a piece of the action. But there's a certain price to be paid for that when you're on your trips. And we've talked about that on this show before as well, about people, you know, sitting at night and sorting their photographs or mm-hmm. editing their video, et cetera, while they're on the trip instead of being out and enjoying the culture. So that's a that's something you have to be comfortable with to begin with. And clearly you're comfortable with it because it's a model that you keep doing over and over. But when you came back on this this initial one where you got the bikes, you did your two weeks, you came back with all your footage, where'd you go from there? I had an interest in video editing on a very amateur basis anyway. When we when I did the trip to Moscow, we, we filmed bits and pieces and, and we turned it into a little a little video just for ourselves. Nothing else. It was just a 20-minute video of what we did. 
um, and it actually made a fantastic historical record for us. So I, I, I was able to do some basic video editing, and I just took what I thought was some of the best bits from what we'd filmed on the camcorder and some very, very basic helmet cameras, and just turned it into a, an eight-minute promo. And then I sent that round to, oh, I don't know, must have been 30 or 40 different um, commissioning editors of lots of different channels in the UK, and then followed up, as you do with any good sales process, you, you know, start with something paper or an email, then you follow up with a phone call. Yeah, that's another hint, you know, never leave everything just to email. People do like talking to people, even in this day and age. But followed up with uh, phone calls and chase people, and it, it was a sales process. Um, and eventually one of them, I got hold of the guy, and he said, oh, yeah, I have seen it. It looked interesting. Come in and speak to me. So we went in, and we talked about how we would turn some very, very rough content into something that was presentable for TV, um, and then and and actually how we would structure each episode. So he wanted to see how, what would each episode look like. So I had to come up with a, a a proper TV pitch, which was this is what we did. This is why the audience would like it. Here's a structure of six different episodes. This is this is what we did in each episode. This was the the danger we faced. This was the the jeopardy. This was the people we met. This was what makes it exciting. And this is how we closed it. So I did. I, I had to learn lots of new stuff, but I enjoy doing that kind of thing. I, I like learning new skills and um, new experiences, whether whether it's on a motorcycle or trying to pitch what I did on the motorcycle to a TV executive afterwards. But that was the process we, we went through. Once you learned how to do the presentation, then you, you brought it back. I mean, really, what you're doing, though, is you're still doing all of this on your own. You, you're going through and you're editing this into episodes. That's all on your own before you have any commitment from the television station. Yeah, we, we didn't do a, a final edit before we took it to the to the channel. So they'd seen the promotion, the promotional video. They'd seen some other clips. They'd seen what I had because I, I knew where we'd been and what had happened and what we'd filmed. So I could put this guide together, just a written guide that says, here's what happened in each episode. And that's the basis on which they bought it. And then they didn't pay very much for it, but it was enough to pay an editor to turn it into a proper TV series. And that in itself is actually a very complex process. And anybody who works in TV knows how complicated it is. And when, you, when you're working with some very basic material to start with, um, it, it's very, very tough. And we, we had some real challenges because the sound quality was very poor and in places the light and the color was very poor. And you'll know from editing a radio show, I mean, the complexities of getting that right. When you watch something on TV or you, you listen to it on the radio or a podcast, it's very difficult to, unless you've been working in the industry, it's very difficult to understand the complexity of getting it looking right. It, it's sort of, the, the end result looks or sounds easy, but getting it there isn't. And when the uh, editor looked at your footage, he must have just rolled his eyes and thought, oh man, <laughs> what am I into? <laughs> I mean, what did you do with it? You end up doing voiceovers on it to, to make up when your audio was poor? Uh, yes. So when the audio was poor, we either put in subtitles, uh, and it was very poor in a lot of places. When we did the second trip and the second TV series, we had a cameraman with us, so we had better sound. But again, it still wasn't perfect with with you know, our crew of one. Um, so now we had to use a lot of um, subtitles, but also we did use a lot of voiceover because we didn't have a cameraman. And you don't, you don't realise how much you have to film to actually get six times 25 minutes of decent viewing. It's actually a heck of a lot you have to film. I remember hearing somebody once talking about documentaries filmed for um, primary channels in the UK, they film a sort of 
a 30 to 1 ratio. So for every every 30 hours they film, they probably only ever use one. Now, we, well, we don't film nearly that much, but we, we didn't have that much footage. So we did have to stretch it a little bit and actually do a lot more explanation with the voiceover of where we were and what we were doing. But we were very lucky with our voiceover because the guy I went with, the rest of the cast from his very long-running TV series, did our voiceover. So they did the narration. And we actually got them in a proper sound studio, and the, and they, the three of them did it. Um, and it's it's the only project outside of their TV series called Red Dwarf that all four of them have worked on together on TV. So that, that was a little first as well. Often what people miss when they're putting movies together is sound. And if you're not into it, you don't realize that sound is probably mm. more important in a video than good quality video. You can have a shaky video, but if the sound is bad, the, the person watching it just cannot stand it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when, as I say, when we filmed the second series where we actually rode a very, very um, old person's version of the Dakar Rally, very, very old person's version down through West Africa, we, as I said, we had a, we had a cameraman with us and he had a decent directional microphone on top of his camera so he could capture a lot. If anybody's ever in a lucky enough position to, to see a, a proper film crew, a full crew, or need a radio crew at work, as you said, the amount of effort that goes into the sound is huge. Now you have a guy with a boom and a microphone in the end of it because to get good sound is very, very difficult. And when we film Adventure by TV, we... Again, we're still limited. Our crew is still just one person and me presenting. And he's 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 our sound man, he's our film crew, he's our gaffer, he's our producer, and then he's the video editor when he gets back to the office. Um, so we we had we had to take a lot of care in terms of getting me mic'd up. And if anybody ever sees us filming at events and watches me clapping in the distance in his direction, it's because I've got sound mic'd up on me and he's filming me from a distance. And when he gets back to the editing suite, he needs to synchronise his sound with the video. And so he synchronises the sound of me clapping with me clapping on the video. And that gets the two th bits of sound synchronised up. Just like you say, though, um, when you're going through that much work to sync the audio and the video together, it's something for someone to consider if they're actually thinking of filming themselves on a trip. If you come back and you have no audio from it, you're really going to be hard-pressed to make any sort of documentary unless it's completely done with voiceovers. So it's, this is one of the technical aspects that you have to consider before you go. It is. A lot depends on what you want to film for. And when, I'm, when I do my kind of talks about filming, the very, very first thing I, I talk about is is who's your audience and who are you filming this for? Because if you're on a trip, if you're just on a, a week-long road trip or if you're going around the world for, for two years you know, and, you, and you want to film it, and which isn't necessarily a thing everybody wants to do because, as you said, Graham Film had a great comment, which is if you're filming things and if you're filming for sponsors, yeah, it takes a lot of time and it can, it can detract from your trip, absolutely. But you have to think about who you're filming for. If you're just filming to give yourself a record and you don't really want to do anything with it, you just want to look at the clips when you get home, then that's fine. But if you're filming because you want to produce something and edit it and give it a professional look and feel and to show it to people who aren't even necessarily you know, motorcycling or adventure or travel enthusiasts, then you do need to work a bit more. You need to think about how you're filming and, and what you're going to film. Um, you don't necessarily need to have very, very expensive equipment. You can stick a microphone into an iPhone and record sound on that in your back pocket along with a little point-and-shoot camera. I mean, you can do lots of different things with a very inexpensive kit if you want to. But it all depends on how professional you want to make something when you come home and 
uh, and who your audience is going to be. And anything I produce now, I've got to make interesting because my family are bored sick of my TV stuff. So <laughs> I've got to try and make interesting for them. Well, the ironic thing was, too, you mentioned that you didn't get much money for it. You didn't make a profit on this at all, really. Your first one, you went out, you did all this, you came out, you said you had to sell all your all the great goodies that you got as sponsorship. So you came out with what? From, from the first one, uh, with nothing, no. Other than the satisfaction like the, the uh, of, of completing the trip and getting something on the air. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I don't, and I haven't, and I don't particularly intend to keep on doing this for the money. I, I'm fortunate I have a, a good job which pays the bills, and this is this is a, a an absolutely wonderful and very self-indulgent hobby. So I, I don't make money from the trips and, and don't need to do so. So they're sort of commercial trips as in the sponsorship and the TV things pays to get the trip done and then pays for editing, which is in itself a very expensive process. Yeah, they're not done to make money for me, no. Now, you've done others since then, and I want to talk about those as well. But I was just going to mention, now that you've been selling your your films to TV, you've got a couple of series done already. Is it, in your mind, easier to film for yourself and put it on a YouTube channel and, and just attract you know viewers that way? Or is it worth the hassle to try and sell it to a, a conglomerate or a local TV station? Uh, in terms of ease, it's definitely easier to do something yourself and put it onto YouTube. 100% because you firstly you're not constrained by the rules of TV which do constrain what you can do to a certain point yeah so so it is definitely easier you don't have to ask somebody to put it on there you can just do it and put it on and in terms of actually numbers of viewers then you know, a good piece of stuff on YouTube will probably get more viewers eventually than we will you know, a, a small satellite TV channel in the, in the UK doesn't actually you know, it doesn't get hundreds or hundreds of thousands of viewers or even you know, sometimes tens of thousands. Um, but there is, for me, a certain satisfaction knowing I'm going through the TV kind of channel to people. It is a, it is a, a medium of communication to try and put my message out, you know, the message of adventure and travel and new experience and pushing yourself and doing new things. That's the message I, I want to get out there. So, yeah, it's definitely, definitely easier on, on YouTube. I think if you're trying to get sponsorship – TV still has something because if you say I'm going to put create a video and put it onto YouTube, there's no guarantee you're going to get anybody watching it. There's no guarantee on TV, but there's probably you're more than likely to have viewers who regularly watch that channel, um, and that makes sponsorship a little easier. Uh, but YouTube, YouTube is, is is definitely the simplest way. Now, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. It takes a, it's very time consuming doing the TV stuff. It's very time consuming, um, and very importantly, as you said, on your trip. It does change things. TV does more, in my experience, has made it a little easier to get support and sponsors. But if you're filming for TV with sponsors, and you mentioned this earlier, and I know Graham Field mentioned it in his interview, it does make a huge difference to how your how your days are laid out and to a trip, and particularly on a, on a small two-week trip. All mine are about what you can do in two weeks. So it really, really does make a huge difference. Now, on a, a typical day on our last trip up uh, around the Arctic Circle, you've still got four or 500 miles to ride in a day. So that, that's, and particularly in Norway and up in the north of Europe, the speed limits are, are quite strict. So four or 500 miles is a good eight to 10 hours riding. And if we've then got something we're doing during the day, because you, if you're filming something for TV, we're trying to do things that are interesting for the viewer as well as the riding and the adventure. 
and then you're stopping and filming at interesting places because yeah, we just cross this fantastic bridge or we're going across a fjord or the view across those mountains is just astonishing or there's a yeah, there's a great rainbow there. So you're always trying to stop and film the interesting bits or if you see some people who you want to talk to, you stop and talk to those. So on top of your eight to ten hours of riding, you may have an activity which is a couple of hours, at least a couple of hours of stops, probably more, maybe three or four to film stuff. So that's 14 to 16 hours before you've actually had anything to eat and before you know, any mishaps and things going wrong. And actually things going wrong are entertaining as well. So actually you want to film all, all of those. So my wife always jokes with me about me doing my, my holidays, as she calls them. But it, it is hard work. You know, when you've not only the, the riding of eight to 10 hours a day, but filming it does add a huge amount. And then you stop, you eat, get in your tent and you go to write the blog. So Yes, it, it absolutely changes nature of what you're doing, but it's something that, that I enjoy, and I enjoy, I enjoy that creative process as we are doing it as well. Um, I think I'm a bit wrong. I would absolutely love to go and do a great big continent-spanning Trans-America, Trans-Canada, go around the world, something like that, and do it without filming it, without thinking about sponsors, and just do it for me and the, and the person or the people I'm riding with. That'd be great as well, but with my place in time and family, that's just not possible. So let me just say the the, the pros that, that I see of each one and tell me what you think. With YouTube, you've got your creativity. Um, you, you're not answering to anyone and you know you can do whatever you want for sponsorship and so you can produce it on your own time, you post it and you can also promote it through your social media to try and get mm. people looking at it. If it's a great thing, like you said, you're gonna get a lot more viewers than you are on TV. But yeah. with TV, there's a there's a certain you know um, status symbol that you get for television because you've got viewers that are probably plunked in front of their sets and are going to watch it no matter even if it is crap, <laughs> which but it won't be because when you go to the TV station they're not going to accept something that's garbage. So all of a sudden you have up the game by being pushed into a more professional format, although giving up some of your creativity and uh, etc. along the way. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it, um, for for TV it's rare that you can get away with doing something that's a, a one a one times 20 minutes. So if you've got enough footage to create something that's good, that's 20 minutes long, then that's fantastic. But you'd that would never go on TV. But you can definitely put it onto YouTube. So uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier about that, the amount you've got to film to create six half-hour episodes on a two-week trip is huge. You know, you, you re, to create something that's interesting and keeps the audience with you, in for two weeks filming that's that's a, that's a lot you know there is a lot we have to try and do and we pack a lot into that two weeks to try and make it interesting um yeah I, i've done trips of my own where i still like to go and take some filming of it and as a record for myself um but i'd really rarely make more than a 15 or 20 minute film out of it because actually i want to do that trip with my friends and enjoy the holiday yeah, enjoy the holiday and the exploration and not worry about filming and writing and doing all that kind of stuff so you have to you'd have to film a lot to, to create a tv series you have to film a lot less to do something on on youtube um so yeah it, as you said there's pluses and minuses both ways but uh, there's, there's a huge amount of fun in in filming for me there's a huge amount of fun it, it, it's it, the whole creative process and trying to make something interesting i, I find absolutely fascinating one of the other uh, aspects of filming it, if you're going to do that, is your angles. Many people will mount a GoPro camera on their on their helmet and ride along and film hours worth of riding from that position. You're not doing that. 
No, funny enough, it is one of the things I get asked a lot about. Oh, yeah, what helmet camera should I get? And um, my usual response is, well, what have you got that's not the helmet camera? Or well, nothing yet. And it's I would say, well, start with something that's not the helmet camera. And they're great gadgets and they're fantastic. And I have I have lots of them and they they're wonderful. But if again it comes back to the question about what what, what are you trying to film and who you're trying to film for and what you're trying to create. If you're trying to give yourself a record of what it was like riding along that road that you can look at, you know, a year or two or three years down the road, fantastic. You know, go with your helmet cameras to your heart's content, have one on your helmet and one on your wheel and one on the rear wheel and you know, do it all. Fantastic. But to anybody else apart from the person who's ridden along that road, that's boring. You know, five seconds of riding along that road, and unless you're swerving around elephants or tigers or something, time that's boring. <laughs> and it is. And uh, and I, I see people's faces falling because they've just gone out and spent £300 on a GoPro. Uh, and, and it's great. I mean, you can film a whole thing on a GoPro if you want to. But if you want to create something that's interesting for other people to watch, helmet camera footage is fantastic and important, but only in very, very small doses. What people like seeing is is other people. And that's actually the hardest thing to film is, is if you're off on a motorbike trip and you want to create something interesting, then actually the most interesting thing to film is yourselves talking or doing things or the people you meet. And that can be quite hard. You know, I'm kind of used to it now, but if you're talking to somebody and you want, you want a proper record of that, how many people would feel awkward saying, do you mind my friend just films us while we're talking? <laughs> but that's what you need. And actually that's, for an audience, that's what's more interesting. And actually that's, for me, is the most interesting stuff about motorbike trips anyway, is the people you meet. So I, I like a record of the people you meet and the people you talk to, you know, whether they're interesting or boring or weird or normal. You know, those are the interesting things. After this first trip, what was your next thing that you did for film? So we did uh, the trip around the med. And actually whilst we were just finishing that off we were talking about what we would do if we did another one and I, I had said I'd always fancied going through West Africa not doing the Dakar rally because I'm, I'm nowhere near fit or young or, or good enough rider to do it but to do something that followed generally speaking the kind of route down through Morocco and, and Western Sahara and Mauritania down to Dakar and Senegal so that's what we did so we did that it'll be three years almost three years ago now uh, and we started in Spain and we rode actually as far as Dakar and Senegal and on to the Gambia because we went to see a, a, a British charity that do a lot of work in the Gambia and they came back to, to Dakar. And uh, so, again, that was a 14-day a or 15-day trip, not as many miles as the first one, but very different conditions. We, we did some de some desert riding, a lot more off-road. We had, we had mechanical problems. We, we had a lot of problems, which actually made for an interesting documentary you almost you almost want some stuff to go wrong <laughs> it's <laughs> true isn't it it's the <laughs> adversity that everybody loves you know they don't want to see that you made it they want to see you drop your bike they want to see you dump it in the water all oh. those things i mean isn't that why people you know holler at games and stuff when somebody wipes out or gets in a fight absolutely and, and we did and we, we we were dropping bikes left right and center because we have we have big adventure bikes in in deep sandy conditions and and that and they, that's perfectly okay if you're a very very competent rider. But if you're an average off-road rider trying to ride a big heavy, you know, twelve hundred cc bike is is quite difficult. So we were dropping bikes left, right, and centre, and we had some, some mechanical problems. And out of three bikes, so myself and Danny and our cameraman Tom, um, 
Tom's bike finished only, and yeah, they were, these were these were almost new bikes. His bike could barely do twenty miles an hour for the last sixty or seventy miles because his clutch was going, and um, we had problems with our fans, which were partly self-inflicted. So Danny's bike was overheating for the last four hundred miles, and some of these problems illustrate some of the challenges with those big bikes, which is if they if they go and and, and don't go wrong they are fantastic and actually the bike that we had had just before yeah, a few months beforehand had done the trans-america trip from south america to alaska and back in one go so that guy had done sixty-four thousand miles on the same bike and yeah he, he had he had it was faultless it's the same bike as we were using and we, yet we had all these problems in, in a in a three and a half thousand mile ride so it just and they were the kind of problems that we some of them we could fix but yeah the problem with the clutch was a it was it was well beyond us and it would be beyond any of the mechanics we could have found in in west africa there was no main dealers there uh i mean luckily yeah we we managed to finish but really only just that would that would have been a potentially a trip ending issue if that had happened somewhere else yeah in the middle of a very very big large trip so it, it sort of plays to the the theory that a simpler, maybe air-cooled bike, smaller engined, is a better tool for the job. Maybe, yeah. You can you can go either way, and you could have, you could create a very convincing argument either way. Yes, and we've heard uh, convincing yes. arguments for both sides <laughs> of it. And, and uh, yes. I, I guess the other side of the coin would be if nothing had happened, you know, they're great on the open road and things like that. What what bike did you have? Was it a BMW the R twelve hundred? No, no, this was um, Yamaha Super Tenere's. So were the Tenere's supplied to you? Was that, a, was that something that was done as part of the filming uh, trip? Yeah, we, we had a, an agreement with Yamaha. So Yamaha provided us with, with those three bikes. Uh, they, they were a great partner to work with. Um, apart from when I was ringing the guy up on a Sunday evening saying, bike's broken, it's not working, what can we do? No, it was, uh, that was <laughs> not, not a lot of fun. Uh, but I mean, some of the things we repaired, you know, there was stuff that we were told we couldn't repair, so the little motor, electric motor that drives the the, uh, the radiator fan, is a is a is a sealed compressed uh, metal unit, and in theory you're not meant to take it apart and fix it. But with the help of some local people and some soldering iron in somebody's workshop and some bits of graphite from a pencil, you know we we, we got it fixed and it, and it almost lasted the rest of the trip. So it, you can do some stuff, but taking the clutch apart to try and sort that out that was beyond any of us. Well, that certainly sounds like a film to watch just for just for those <laughs> moments of adversity that you've discussed there. Ultimately, you came back, though. You you had a, a bunch of film in the can, and again, you, you'd sold it, or did you have it sold before you went? Well, the channel that had done the first TV series around the Med had said that the Dakar project, if it was good enough, they'd take it. So uh, we knew we had to up the game from the, from the first one. They said you know, they were happy to give us that... You know, that break on the first one with poor quality, but we had to take a cameraman with us. We had to have it have it better planned and, and have an idea of the things where we were going to go and what we were going to film. But they said, yeah, the sound quality had to be a lot better, the light, etc. So we 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 did up our game. Um, so we weren't working on a commission, but we had been told that if when we came back, if it was good enough quality, that that they would take it. Graham, why not ride your own bikes uh, on the trip so you don't have the problems of picking up a bike that might be a, a press bike or something like that? Was it just to get the corporate connection? Yes. Yeah, so um, a, a couple of reasons. Very, very selfishly, I didn't want to. I didn't want to put four thousand miles of rough riding on my bike. 
um, a bit selfish, but yeah, that's one of the, that's a fair reason. But also, yeah, the, again, it comes back to sponsorship. So they Yamaha were able to get their bikes on TV and in the media, and we took the we, we kept one of the bikes for a year and we took it to all the shows. So you know they got their their pound of flesh, if you will, out of the cost to them of loaning those three bikes. So yeah, and I mean, and actually, we, yeah, we had a deal with them, so we got a little bit of money to help pay for the trip. So yes, it, it was a good deal for us. We got bikes and we got some some support to help pay for the trip as well. So that's interesting to consider before you start a trip. If you were thinking of doing something like this, thinking of um, who you might get involved, because uh, they, you know, if you wanted to get somebody for exposure for television, uh, it's not going to work just to slap a logo on it afterwards. It's it's going to have to be something that's thought out in advance. Yeah, absolutely, and there is so much competition out there now for what is actually probably less money because uh, the, but the bike industry as a whole is is, is 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 a bit smaller, although the adventure part of it is growing. But there are so many people out there doing doing adventures and, and doing fantastic and different and interesting, you know, solo here, solo there, or um, yeah, solo ladies here. Ev- everyone's got an angle, different place, doing it quickly, doing it slowly, doing it for years on end, 10 years on end, everyone's got a slightly different angle. And you know, a lot of those people aren't after sponsorship. They're just out there doing it for themselves. But there is a lot of competition for less money and less product out there. So it, it is definitely harder. And you have to give, you know, in terms of what you give, you have to up your game. And whether it's celebrity involvement or celebrity endorsement or you know somebody who can get an article in a very, very big magazine that's maybe not even a motorcycle magazine, who just, just gets to a bigger audience. Um, yeah, TV isn't the only one, but what can you do in terms of internet TV shows? There's lots of, there's certainly, I mean, there are lots of different channels now in terms of getting your message out there, but you're definitely competing in, in a very hotly contested world. And that doesn't appeal to everybody to try and do that. You know, there's, there's a huge amount of good stuff in just getting on a C90 moped and going around the world, as we know plenty of people do. And nowadays, there's more people in the world too, and you know this this changes for us all the time. So people like our kids and our grandkids are are going to have more of a competition. I mean, there'll be more of a market there too. But I mean, I think you're having more people out there, like you said, doing the same things. And the other thing is, is, is the media is easier to um, to work with. Uh, you know, I, I was in the publishing business many many years ago, and and we used to we started out putting our artwork on paste up boards, which is a just a board that you wax up things and you set on the board, and then the camera shoots it. Well, nowadays we know we design this in a computer and we go straight to the press from there so mm. being that the the technology has made producing this stuff so much easier there is so many more people exponentially doing the same sorts of things so um yeah definitely upping your game is is something i think you'd have to decide right from the the start and what we're trying to do um is trying to you know put something out there so people realize the consequences you know realize or at least what they're getting involved with so you don't go and film and spend all kinds of time on your wonderful round the world trip and realize you've wasted a whole bunch of time filming only to get back and find out that there's nothing you can do with it yeah and it, and, and that absolutely comes back to the point i made yeah and it's the first point i make about anybody filming anything which is just think about why you're doing it and, and who you're doing it for because that sh- absolutely shapes how much time you spend doing it it'll probably shape how much enjoyment you have from doing it as i said i take great enjoyment in trying to create something um Either for TV or you know just for an audience, that that really appeals to me, and I uh, I do it on my own holiday trips as well to a lesser extent. But I, you know, I'm 
going around Eastern Europe with my best mate this summer for a week on our bikes. That's just our trip, but we will film it. And we're not going for another seven months, but he was here last night and we were talking about what we're going to film and how we're going to film it. Because we, we just, that's something we really, really enjoy. And that will only be for us. Now, there'll probably be no one else in the world will ever watch it, but we will, and we want to make something good. Um, and if if it's not important to have that record, video record, when you come home, then don't spend too much time doing it. You taking your camera on your motorcycle is like a, a fisherman going for a ride on his motorcycle and taking his fishing rod. I mean, it's just something you love to do. Absolutely. And on, on any trip I do, I always have a camera in my pocket uh, and something in addition to my to my phone. And even if it's, you know, I have a little, I always call it a little point and shoot HD camera. So, but it, it shoots HD movies. I can take nice pictures with it. And there's always, it's either in my jacket pocket if I'm on the bike if I'm out in the evening it's in my in my shorts or in my jeans pocket I just film lots of bits and it it might be interesting people it might be an interesting place it might be me or my buddy talking or talking to people and and yeah it's like yeah they say a professional cameraman always got it has always got his camera with him so that on my trip is, is always there but I don't if it's a holiday there's no pressure around doing it. I just, it's just there. And if I, if I spot a moment, then I'll, I'll film it. But that's it for me. It's fun. After Africa, what trip did you do next? So we wanted to, um, the, we actually had a plan that changed. So our original plan was to ride all the way from Calais. So that's one of the westernmost ports of France, most one of the most western parts of, of Europe, all the way to Vladivostok, which is one of the most eastern ports in russia so it's all the way across europe and then and then russia so it's about seven thousand miles so in distance it was about the same as we did circumnavigating the mediterranean sea and it's 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 a very doable piece of piece of riding now but you know, again an endurance ride but then there was lots of political unrest lots of stuff happening around ukraine and eastern europe and because I knew we'd have sponsors involved, you just because again you have responsibilities, and we couldn't risk things going wrong. So we changed it, and we went north. So we went all the way to the northernmost point in Europe, which is in a place called Norcap in Norway, and back through Finland and Eastern Europe. And that was still a five thousand mile ride, so it was still a very very long ride in two weeks. But it took us up a road called the Arctic Highway, which starts at the Arctic Circle and takes us north to this place called Norcap in Norway. So a, a very different ride, very, very cold, um, no no huge amounts of off-road riding, but still some quite challenging conditions. Um, and again, the nature of, of that project was different because we were very much filming it for an audience. So it was, um, it actually became quite a challenge in the edit to show the audience that we were doing a lot of riding every day sometimes in the cold, sometimes in the rain. You know, we're up, at, up before six every morning, very rarely finishing riding until eight or nine in the evening, but also trying to do some interesting things en route. So we visited the northernmost racetrack in the world, called the Arctic Highway on the Arctic Circle. We did some stuff off-road in Finland. We visited some fantastic abandoned places in old Eastern Europe, an old Russian abandoned missile site, a mansion where no one lives anymore. So all, all places that were fascinating for us and things for us to do, but also interesting for the audience. So that was that was filmed last summer, and that was shown on TV in the UK 
uh, over a six part series just before just before Christmas. When you're doing these, you, you mentioned earlier about the six part series. That's pretty much the minimum you're going to have to present to a, a station before they'll pick you up. Yeah, you, you might get away with four, but really they're after they're after six. That that's that's their ideal thing because they want something that will that will draw an audience in and keep on drawing them in. So what they want is something which in the first two episodes, people are talking to their friends, so that episodes three, four, five, and six, the audience is building all the way through. So that's what they're after. Graham, that's a, a fantastic trip that you just described there, and you have it cut into such a short time frame. Are you ever worried that you're going to go over just because of problems that you have on the trip? Um, yes, that's always, that's always a possibility. Um, and we've always got to have that contingency, I guess. Um, I mean, we were, we were although it was a long trip, we weren't, we weren't actually out of Europe. So um, it was still, it was, re- it was far more, if you will, civilized than going through North Africa or West Africa or the Middle East. But um, you have to have some contingency in place for when things do go wrong. And in fact, the trip around the Arctic Circle, we had a guy who didn't finish. He had a very bad accident in Finland. Um, and couldn't continue luckily he was able to walk so uh it was a very difficult decision for me as as the team leader to say do we stay with him make sure he's okay but actually in the end although he was cut off in ambulance he was he was out of hospital in a couple of hours and and flew home and he's a tough guy he was able to look after himself so uh, no so we we weren't able to to finish it altogether unfortunately Uh, but it it didn't delay it didn't delay the trip Graham, while you're riding to the Arctic, clearly you're going to deal with cold weather. Can you talk about some of the difficulties of riding in those conditions? Yeah, we we were riding in the summer, so it wasn't a case of riding across uh, Arctic tundra and and you know feet worth of snow and ice. So it, it was it was very cold, and there was always the possibility of snow. But we we were very lucky that we didn't encounter it. But what we were very concerned about was the, was the cold and i've ridden in some very cold places um for instance bulgaria in uh, in the winter and, and and russia in late summer and those places have been very very cold and i love i was always underprepared so this time we were much better prepared for the cold and maybe it's a sign of age i don't know now i'm i'm 46 now and <laughs> i don't mind the cold but if i can find a way of avoiding it i will so um, why, put you, why put yourself through hell if you, if you can find a way not to do it? So um, we actually had heated vests with us, um, which were an absolute revelation to me, having ridden for over 30 years. And uh, for large chunks of that, when I've been working, I've been commuting. And I've commuted in, in every kind of weather, snow, rain, ice, everything, um, and, and driven lots of miles in the cold. And to suddenly realise that I could ride in the cold and not only not be cold, but actually be warm <laughs> was a complete revelation. Um, and of course, yeah, you, have, you have to have a, a bike with a kind of decent battery and stuff to run a heated vest. But I mean, that was that was quite something for me. And we also used handlebar muffs. That's what we call them in the UK. So great big pouches that hang on your handlebars. So your hands are hidden inside inside these pouches. You, you tend to see a lot of dispatch or, or courier riders use them in the UK because I guess they can have very thin gloves or even bare hands inside them and stay warm, and then they can use their radios or, or whatever very easily. They were great because I, I could wear, I didn't have to wear huge, great, thick 
mittens on my hands. I could wear sort of you know, regular gloves, and, and my hands would would stay reasonably warm inside of those. Um, and we, and the, the other thing was nights as well, because you know, if, if you're riding lots and lots of hours during the day and doing the filming as well, the last thing you want to do in the six or seven hours of, of sleep that you might get is have a bad night's sleep. So we were careful to take decent sleeping bags and decent mats and good tents so that we could stay as warm as possible. But even then, one of the guys, in fact, the guy who who, who um, didn't complete the trip really struggled with the cold. And it wasn't something that he was aware that he'd done. And he, he done lots of stuff, uh, kind of quite tough stuff around the world, but he'd, he'd never suffered with the cold. And we were all wearing a good four or five layers of clothing inside our sleeping bags and you know, double and triple socks and things and our hats on and so to stay warm. But even with that, he just couldn't get warm. Um, so it wasn't like traveling across ice, but the conditions were difficult. And, and when it and when it did rain, the roads were were very very slippery. So we had to be care- We did have to be very careful, particularly when you're riding you know, long distances as well. I can't imagine what you're going through filming in the cold. You're dealing with the cold as a bike rider, as a human being. You know, being thrust through the wind there when it's in uh, in low temperatures. And on top of that, you're having to stop and film and deal with cameras. What's all that like? Actually, it's a welcome break because if you're sat in the motorcycle for for two or three hours. At a time, I kind of I kind of have a rhythm of movement on long rides to keep myself stretched and, and moving, so I don't seize up. Again, maybe that's an age thing. I don't know, but um, but when you stop and you're off the bike, at least you're moving, so you, your blood circulating. So actually, I found it quite good. So, um, so actually, what I thought was was a pain for you was really something you look forward to. Anyone would just mention about filming, you go, yeah, 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 let's film that. <laughs> <laughs> let's stop and move around and yeah. get some sick. <laughs> But I, I do remember on the first trip we f- we filmed for TV, when it was just me and and, and Danny, no no crew or no cameraman or anything. So we were just filming with my with my little HD camcorder, and we were we were somewhere and and uh, this place was snowy. There, there were snow banks all around. The, we stopped at a gas station and the snow was all banked up around the gas station and there was crunchy salt on the foot to keep it from the ice. Oh, I saw the footage of it. There, there, it snow is like two feet deep uh, all yeah. over the place on top of the, the canopy for the gas station, the whole bit has all been fresh snow and you're standing on. Absolutely. And we, and we, we were filming and we, we, we did a lot of filming and we're just with me holding the camera up and us both looking at it and we were chatting away because we, we, and we both had our barraclavas on and stuff because it was so cold. And I was looking at the, the picture on the swivel screen, LCD screen so I could see what we were filming. And the camera wouldn't focus. It was so cold, the camera couldn't focus. That's how cold it was. Um, and, we, and we were caught in a blizzard um, literally about you know, half an hour later. And we stopped and filmed ourselves being caught in the blizzard. Um, and it, and it, was, it was really the only time where we both felt actually in danger because we were on what was actually quite a busy road with big trucks coming down it and all we could both imagine was these trucks sliding down this snowy icy road into us so um we actually we gave ourselves a limit we said right we'll, we'll ride five more miles and if we don't see somebody to to pull over at a gas station or something we will just pull over into into the woods and camp in the woods um but we were we were in in, in quite worrying bear territory um when i did my research that particular part of i think it was bulgaria was uh was, was had lots of black bear um which at the time when we were tired and cold probably seemed more of a problem than it probably would have been if we'd stopped there but 
yeah, it seemed like less of a the lesser of two evils than the riding along that road, which was just becoming more and more dangerous. Yeah, and since it's probably winter time, wasn't it? Black bears should be hibernating then. Yeah, this was uh, middle of March. Oh, I see. So just an unseasonable snowfall that you ran into. Yeah, well, it, it's um, it, I mean that, that's ski season. So yeah, and middle of March is still late ski season across that part of Europe. So. Um, I sort of deliberately chose the route to make it difficult. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, for a better film. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I kind of like to make things hard for myself um, in a, in a two-week trip. Um, but I hadn't thought about hibernating bears. Actually, maybe they'd just be coming out of hibernation and be hungry. That would have made it worse. Yeah, that would definitely uh, make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> because then they get up and they're they're stumbling around and looking for a meal. But, but so the, <laughs> the GoPro camera's got to be okay to film with in the in the cold, um, and certainly with snow blowing around. But your other stuff, I mean, this just must be a nightmare to deal with. Um. Yeah, it's surprising. I mean, that the the cameraman who comes with us, he's on a bike as well, so. He's carrying, uh, I mean, he, he, he carries a, a digital SLR, which is the, with a microphone on top, which is his, his main filming camera. Um, I also carry one of those in my tank bag as, as a spare. So if ever anything goes wrong, we, yeah, we've got a camera we can continue filming with. Um, he, we've also between us got about five or six different helmet cameras. Um, I have a helmet camera with a microphone on it so that I can commentate. And again, coming back to my point I made earlier about go more than five or six seconds of, of tarmac and it's it's boring to anybody other than the person who's ridden it. So I, I talk a lot as I'm filming to, to talk about particularly the emotions and you know, where you've been and how it's feeling and are you tired, are you happy, are you cold? And Because you, yeah, the sense of the moment, you're only there that once. So capture it any way you can. Um, and we, we, we use quite a few bits of that. And that's more interesting to watch and listen to if you've got the voice at that time. He also carries, uh, on this trip, we had a quadcopter. So the quadcopter fitted into one of his panniers. So he, so we had to sort of share his kit around as well because he only had one pannier. So bear in mind he's on a motorcycle. He actually had quite a lot of kit, you know, digital SLR, tripod, quadcopter, lots of different helmet cameras. Um, we both had laptops with us so we could we could download footage every night because you, you want to copy everything every day because you don't want to risk losing anything. Um, but we've sort of got, he, he and I work together on a lot of projects now, so we've got a sort of fairly good rhythm of working. And I know if he rides in front of me and makes a hand signal, that means he's something he's seen something he wants to go and film and I just trust his judgment that we should go and film it or he'll make a, a movement with his forefinger, a circular movement, which means he wants to use a quadcopter and will stop and... Um, it can be hard sometimes because you're tired and actually all you want to do is get to your campsite and get your head down. But equally, when he says, let's stop and film something, the end result's always worth doing. I remember on Long Way Round thinking that uh, Claudia, the, the cameraman there, I thought there could be a whole film made about the cameraman because it seems to me the cameraman does more work on a lot of adventures. I mean, you look at all these extreme adventures where they're, you know, maybe they're climbing a mountain and then you've got the cameraman who's climbing the mountain, but on top of that, he's humping the, the camera up there and and trying to get the video at the same time. And the same thing for, you know, what you're doing there. It's one thing for you to do it, but then the cameraman's messing around with all this gear. Yeah, he is. And um, he always says he wants to do a trip where he doesn't see the trip through a two and a half inch LCD screen. <laughs> that, that's amazing. I mean, that's obviously every hour on the motorbike, he's not looking through an LCD screen. But for large proportions of the rest of it, he is looking through his camera. Um, and as I said, you know, 
for every hour that's on TV, we probably threw away seven or eight hours of footage. You know, we don't do the 30 to one like they do for big TV programs, but there is a lot we throw away. So he is filming a lot of the time. It is, it is constant. He's always thinking about it. And some mornings he's up before us because he wants to film the dawn. Uh, so yeah, he, 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 work, he works very, very hard on it. He works very hard. So what's the next adventure you're working on now? Well, we've got we've got a whole different range of things that we that we might do. It's it's still going to be what can you do that's a two week adventure. And the one that I think we're going to do this year is even closer to home than than the Arctic. So um, there's a there's a fabulous route across the Southern Pyrenees. The Pyrenees is the mountain range between France and Spain, and the Spanish are very open minded about taking bikes off road. And there's a fabulous route that I've done some of it before. It's, about a th- it's only about a thousand kilometers, so that's uh, six, seven hundred miles, of which sixty uh, percent is off-road. And you follow this. This it's a it's a proper rally roadbook route. So you follow a, a rally roadbook with you know, literally left-right turns every hundred or hundred meters or every half half a kilometer, uh, and you follow GPS points as well. And you follow this route, and it's the variety in such a short route that you can get because you go from snow-clad mountaintops, even in the summer, you, you're reaching the snow line, down through winding, green, dark, humid valleys to deserts. And there's actually a desert in northwest Spain that almost no one's ever heard of. And you cram all this into seven or eight days of riding. So we're actually going to film that for Adventure Bike TV, I think, later this summer and take a, a slightly larger group, but different this time. So not filming it for sort of terrestrial TV, we're filming it for Adventure Bike TV, and we're going to get everyone on their own bikes. So a very different trip again, but it'll be very, very exciting. And then hopefully next year we're going to do something either in India or in South Africa, but that will, that's going to take a bit more time and planning. Graham, thanks very much for coming on Adventure Rider Radio and telling us your story. Jim, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Graham Hoskins, the host for Adventure Bike TV. And if you're in the UK, you can see him on television with his World's Best Biking Adventures series. And of course, there will be links in the show notes for all the places where you can find out more about Graham and watch his videos. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. To listen to more episodes of Adventure Rider Radio, visit our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Now, you don't want to miss next week's episode when we talk to about... I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to give it to you. You're going to have to come back around and listen again. Wait a second, before you go and jump on your bike, drop by our website and give us your comments. Or drop by iTunes and give us a rating. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are, we are part of to ride. We're not part of the boat. We are. <laughs> <You do. laughs> I'm so much better. Let's do this again. I am Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are to ride the world. You are listening to. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are To Ride Ride the the World. world. And you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Radio.